By the way, you're looking great. You sound great. Thank and you. And you're a very deep thinker. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. Hey, friends. Uh, this is Fez. Um, welcome to another episode of Fez and Friends. I'm here with Dr. Joel Bloom, uh, one of probably the most uh, impactful, most inspiring people in my life. Um, he's the president or the outgoing president of the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He worked at the New Jersey State Department of Education. He worked at Columbia University. Um, and then you made your way to NJIT, you started as vice president, then you became the founding dean of the Albert Dorman Honors College, eventually becoming the, uh, the president of NJIT during what I will say is an extremely <laughs> transformational period. I mean, um, when I think about NJIT when I got to school compared to when I was just walking in today, it's, it's just different. It's different. I see scooters everywhere. I see um, the, the WEC, which is just, you know, iconic. Um, so you oversaw all of those transformational changes. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate the support you've had of the projects that I've worked on um, when I was in college and, and even today. So thank you so much again for joining me. So you're very welcome. Allow me to turn this off, please. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you talk about transformation, but you were one of the transformational leaders as a student leader when you were here. I appreciate that. Uh, you started up a whole fraternity, if you will, a professional fraternity, with some f colleagues, some fellow students, but you were clearly the leader of it. And particularly in an area that NJIT, NJIT has always been well recognized as an engineering school. It's always been very well recognized as a college of architecture and design. But you took the school of management uh, the Tuckman School of Management, which is not as widely known, whether uh, regionally or, or nationally, and you gave it a profile through student power. Wow. That's through student power. You did what others have attempted to do, including myself, which is get more visibility for a very, very well-accomplished, outstanding faculty, outstanding students, very well-accomplished School of Management, because it's management with uh, the power of STEM, right. to, to quote a, a dean of a, a previously administration at the, at the college. So you raised the profile. You got students excited. You got me excited about um, the school of management. So thank you for your kind words about what we've done here. But we always do it. Mm -hmm. We always do it with a team of people. I've been extremely fortunate in putting together a team of vice presidents. We've been extremely fortunate in attracting an outstanding class of deans, including the dean that you worked with for during, during some of that time, current Dean Oya Turkel, um, and, uh, and of course the students. NGIT students, without equivocation, are some of the best in the world. Not, not only here in the United States, but best in the world. They come here with very, very strong commitment, um, very, very willingness to listen and to be taught and to take what they learn and create. Mm -hmm. uh, they can create stuff, whether it's in software, they can create stuff that is in hardware. Um, and there is no student, and you probably know this a little about us lately, we're typically ranked among number one in the United States for taking young men and women 
who are in the lowest quintiles of family income when they come here. I'm talking about our undergraduates here. And then they graduate in very high numbers, particularly given our disciplines and our economic levels. And within 10 years of employment, they're among the highest quintile of earners in the nation. So they come here committed. We help, as I think we did with you, the transformation uh, because we give you knowledge, we give you an opportunity to apply the knowledge. Let me say it again, we give you an opportunity to apply the knowledge. So it's real world, real world experiences. And then you are just let free uh, on, the, on the larger environment, jobs, communities, etc. And you begin to transform them as well. In mm. just a little of the conversation we just had prior to going on the air here, um, you were telling me about the, your transformation from corporate America, very, very good companies, to what you're doing today. The fact that you're willing to change and so that you have more of a significant impact, that's testimony to what you did here. It's testimony to what I think we helped you do as a as a university mm -hmm. and kind of what we're doing at this exact moment. No, I mean, to that point, I think my whole mentality and my philosophy for change stems from being hands-on, right? Um, I think a lot about my whole journey through corporate America, through politics, and now in education, and it's always started from a sense of curiosity. I'm always, and as we talked about before, the cameras did start rolling. One of the best pieces of advice that I got in my first job, um, which was at Panasonic, um, which I, I have to say, I could not have gotten that job without the help of the school. Um, the first piece of advice that really resonated for me is if you're not learning something new every single day, then it's time to leave. And I don't think that a lot of people have that mentality, but NJIT was that place where that mentality was birthed for me because every single day that I came to campus, I was looking to do something new, to do, do something exciting. And what I really appreciated about this school was when I came up with an idea, whether it was crazy like, you know, putting on a whole NJIT Idol event or even if it was something smaller. And it actually started from, from your event, Pancakes with the President, right? Your accessibility. Um, the fact that me, just a random freshman, could walk up and talk to the president of the, uni the university and share ideas and not be, you know, shut out. That created my appetite for constantly changing things. And I think that also resonates um, with the student body. So I feel like there's a tremendous amount to say about the work that you put in to create that environment and just enable students to continue to just explore their creativity and see where it leads them. Is that the environment that you're trying to create here? Absolutely. So we could point to a number of our projects. Uh, the one that's probably given the scale, one of the largest maker spaces on a university campus, maybe even one of the largest um, in the Northeast, uh, including corporate as well as, uh, in this case, an institution of higher education. Mm -hmm. So makerspace. Makerspace, uh, again, we, we read. Uh, and to your point, I must tell you the reason uh, I was here originally for a three-year contract and I was going to leave, I was going off to a, a Wall Street opportunity, um, and I stayed. 
I've stayed because something you said a little while ago. Uh, for most jobs we all have, and of course maybe it's a little different in Wall Street because the context changes so regularly, but can you imagine being at this university and able to lead the change with colleagues that we've achieved here? And let me go back to Makerspace. Mm -hmm. Makerspace is an opportunity it is an industrial size makerspace, mm -hmm. which means not only the problems, but the equipment, the work that we're doing in creating solutions, whether again they are software-based or hardware-based, we're doing it at a grand scale. Mm -hmm. This is the same equipment you would see at a makerspace where one of the first I ever visited years ago, uh, Lockheed Martin in Orlando, Florida, which is one of the inspirations, uh, among others, that I said, wow, can imagine if we can do this on a large scale with industry partners, our students and our faculty, and just the confluence of trying to solve physical as well as other problems. So if you look at the equipment in the makerspace, it's now over, it's about 20,000 square foot facility, mm -hmm. the size, and we can do just about any kind of prototyping we can do just about any kind of manufacturing. Right. Um, we can hold it to with very high standards, uh, measurements that we have the capacity to do in our makerspace. So students get trained. Uh, they're, they're obviously taught to work safely with the equipment. Uh, but we do everything from we make parts for our Baja car right. uh, to our steel bridge competitions uh, to our concrete canoe competitions. Um, as well, again, driving some of the development of software and solutions for business and industry. We have partners with, partnered with business and industry in this makerspace. That's an example of what we can put in front of our faculty and students and just let them have at it, at it as architects, as engineers, as management majors, computer scientists, etc. So we have been most focused over this decade now, places like Makerspace. Mm -hmm. almost and just on that point really quick, because I, I love the term Makerspace, but can you just break that down for people who might not know what that is? So, so Makerspace is a, uh, is a manufacturing facility. First, it's a design and manufacturing facility. So let's say you've decided that you're going to take these very handsome microphones and you're going to say all right let's take this concept this strength and we're going to do it nano we're going to take them real small so we could walk around and they're going to be wireless and let's say the industry is challenged to do that mm -hmm. um, we could bring that into makerspace we can deal with the is issue of acoustics we can deal with the issue of design we can deal with the issue of um, of networking and making them wireless, um, and which a lot has been done in the field already, but that's some of the kind of work now you can experiment with mm -hmm. in makerspace, or we're looking at cameras, just about anything that is somewhat machine, mm -hmm. including machine learning, because that's the software side, we can do in this makerspace, mostly in a pilot status, a prototype status. We don't do mass manufacturing there, although we did do some, I must tell you, 
uh, during the early days of COVID, mm -hmm. we were making those visual shields. I don't remember them, the thousands that we were giving to mostly to first responders. So it, it's, and it's very well thought out. The, the, you know, as a student here, students are given some kind of problems to solve throughout the curriculum. Particularly in their senior year, they often work in teams um, and they're given a team project to solve. Sometimes business and industry not only gives us the problems, they also support financially with small grants for the students in their capstone project. Mm -hmm. A lot of the capstone work gets done in this ma design manufacturing prototyping facility called Makerspace. Right, and I, I love that because, first of all, I'm a huge tech enthusiast generally. I, I don't think a lot of people know that because I, I pivoted into politics, but my, my core was always in tech. And what I love about the Makerspace is it used to be the case that if you had an idea, you would actually have to physically tinker with the materials and physically create the device and then test it, then iterate, then improve, and then continue. Whereas now, using a tool like the Makerspace, you're able to visualize what you're trying to create using technology, using software, using you know the programs that you guys have, but then you're able to rapidly iterate, right? Because you don't have to physically put together the thing, see if it works, and then come, you can virtually, or using software, you can run these tests and then design them. So what that enables, in my view, is an acceleration of innovation. Is that what you're going? Absolutely. You know that um, we have been an innovative uh, entrepreneurial accelerator. We, have, uh, we took our incubator space, which is adjacent to our campus, where at one time we had 90 companies, now we've got about 60, but we're more focused on business acceleration. Mm -hmm. So there is a, again, and we call it, it's VentureLeak is the name of the facility. Um, we have uh, grants that we give. Uh, we now created our own NGIT Innovation Fund. Mm -hmm. uh, a group of folks oversee a pot of money that the university has set aside, mostly for students and faculty to innovate and bring a product, commercialize a product concept, uh, an idea, bring it forward, and we will support it. And you're doing it in an ecosystem. You can't innovate and be entrepreneurial all by yourself, sitting all by yourself. Uh, you really need a team very often. Most of the faculty and students, and some of us, we don't know the, the what is the legal side? What is the marketing side? Um, how well do you go after finance? How do you financially support this? So you typically build an ecosystem around people who want to innovate and be entrepreneurial. So we've done that in VentureLink. We've done that with a business accelerator. Um, we have uh, uh, projects here that students and faculty have started that are now in the process of being commercialized. Sometimes they even get uh, a large grant like uh, from NIH or National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation. It often serves uh, for some of our students as their PhD topics, but it's real, it's applied. It has a significant impact, which is what polytechs like us are usually about, improving the quality of life for people who are living it 
whether it's here locally, regionally, or internationally. So um, we have always been. Uh, I think we were incubating businesses uh, just about when I got here back in 1990, mm -hmm. and it just continued to flourish. I, I think that's something that I, I truly admired about this campus because I felt that atmosphere here um, before I even left. I think it's it's exponentially developed since I've left as well. What I think that that does is it bridges the gap between corporations and education where and it's funny because those are the two spaces that I love the most but essentially what you're doing is you're allowing people to try their ideas out for business rather than saying you have to directly go into a big corporation you can this becomes this playground where you can try these ideas out to create new companies that that actually bring society forward. Was that your intention when you created that? Yeah, it was. As you, in, in 2014, I became president in 2011, and one of the things in, in becoming president, you sit down and you begin to talk and plan and, and create. And you, you just, you nailed it. The relationship between business and industry and the academy, higher education, while there's often very massive overlap, they're very different cultures. Business industry has a bottom line, which they very often meet. Yes, they want to make sure, and there are many companies that are employee-owned, but they want to make sure that they are innovating. They, they want to make sure that they are having an impact very often, but they also have a bottom line, whether they're private or public businesses. For higher ed, the bottom line is not critically important. Mm -hmm. In fact, you, when you speak to many of our faculty, our research faculty, they're here as compared to business and industry because they wanted more to focus on the doing the research, creating the knowledge. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to focus on the bottom line. So how do you take these different cultures? There are, most faculty work 11 months out of the year, not 12. Most faculty have classes and research labs, and you can't upset that equilibrium between when they're in the classroom and they're in the lab. Somebody in business industry who's a research scientist is constantly in the lab. So the cultures are different, the whole calendars are different, the time horizons are different. Um, you Even can take, the incentives, right? And the incentives are very different. So in 2014, we created the New Jersey Innovation Institute. Mm -hmm. And we created it because as I was talking with business and industry leaders, they would say, well, I got a problem to solve. It's a chemically based problem. Do I call the dean? Uh, do I call, just find a faculty member randomly in a directory? Do I call the president's office? Mm -hmm. And I kept on searching for the answer to what I kept on hearing out there. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, if we could find, metaphorically speaking, one door to knock on, mm. just, you don't worry if it's if a dean, if it's a research scientist, if it's a graduate student, just, you got, a, you got an issue, you got a problem, you want to work cooperatively, what's this one door? So he said, we'll create the New Jersey Innovation Institute with a leader, and then that group, or that individual can say, okay, this is how we can help you. This is a university of 320 faculty, you know, another 12, 1,300 staff, mm -hmm. 
uh, almost 12,000 students now and 90 labs, where, where do I go? Where do I go? So in New Jersey Innovation Institute has been our solution, our change to create an opportunity for business industry and our faculty as students and research scientists to work with business. And it is, it's turned out to be an outstanding success. Yeah, and I think that actually is what makes NJIT so unique, right? Because what I'm hearing from what you just said is you're essentially saying that we're giving faith into our students, whereas I feel like a lot of institutions these days, they want to have the ideas from the top down where they're the research professors will come up with the idea and then they'll get the students to get involved. But what it sounds like is that you transitioned and said, let's get the students to come up with the ideas that they're passionate about and then bring them and connect them to the faculty that can support them. Is that kind of the mindset of that? Change? That's the absolute mindset. And uh, let's see, I, I think about three months ago, uh, we gave out three of these grants from our innovation fund uh, one of them was to a faculty member, another one was to a faculty working with alumni, alumni are eligible, and then I think one was an all-student-driven innovation, uh, a piece of software that was give you access to the table you wanted to select in a specific restaurant at a specific time. Um, we've had a group here working on something that's critically important. When young men and women playing on, for example, a soccer field, and, and as you know, they, they start playing soccer at very young ages, their, their skulls are not necessarily always even fully developed, and then they go and head a ball or they fall on the field, and they may have had some kind of concussion, which we've learned um, uh, through a company called Oculomotor, led by one of our faculty member members and two of our Honors College alums, um, that that could affect their vision and they create a divergency of vision and an inability to concentrate and read. So they now are working on a commercial level uh, for with, a, again, a software, virtual reality-driven product that retrains the eyes. It's funny because my first episode was with John Vito. Who, oh, John. Yeah, you, yep. John Vito now, uh, John Vito and his colleagues, uh, colleague now, they both teach here at NGIT, and John Vito is the manager of the business, as you probably know, that they set up, they just won this past year a three million. plus million dollar wow, yeah. grant. And of course they've gotten funding from not only us, but from elsewhere. So that's an example, Oculomoto, of one of the companies that grew up between a faculty member, Tara Alvarez, John Vito, and others, there's about nine employees now in the company, as a product of the innovation an entrepreneurial spirit at our campus. No, that's so exciting to me. And, you know, it, it's so funny that you mentioned because he was actually the first episode that we had, and he was one of the people that inspired me in a lot of my trajectory. Um, I want to briefly pivot um, because you mentioned uh, that you were considering leaving. Um, what inspired you to stay? And also, before we even get to that, but how does your background as an economist influence your leadership here um, at NJIT? It's very simple. Financials. Right. Um, what I recognized upon becoming president, which you don't see until you sit in that seat, is how much money we're spending. 
how much money we're spending to recruit and support, most importantly, support students through to graduation, how much money we need to spend on keeping our faculty refreshed, engaged, and doing research. If you have those two, where's the facility for them? Where are the research centers? Um, where are the groups that we're going to support, whether it's faculty going to conferences, publishing, having PhD students? Where do those resources come? Resources, financials, financials, financials. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I learned in the process of studying economics is where, you can, where can you take money and make money? So when I became president, we had every every organization has cash, mm. right? You have you accumulate cash, you're going to spend it. But in between the accumulation and the spending, is something called the float. You can take that and you can invest it. In in 2011, we made about four hundred thousand dollars on those interim investments. Last year, we made six million dollars. Now again, we've doubled our budget. But that's part of the growth here. This year, we're on, on uh, track to make $7 million. Now, again, the budget has since doubled, but it's also the, the investment exponentially has gone well beyond whatever the budget was. So how you use your money. NJIT, so we've worked to monetize everything on campus, including this NJI that I, I spoke about earlier at New Jersey Innovation Institute. We've more than doubled our research. Uh, we went from 80 million to 170 million, 160 million in research expenditures. Well, that brings more money. It's called uh, uh, indirect cost recovery that you get, particularly when you go after federal grants. Um, we have, um, because of our relationship with business industry and alums, you have to grow your alumni participation, which we have done you have access to more gifts, whether they're corporate gifts or individual donors. Our, and that adds to the float, right? And adds to, it's, it's, we invest, invest, invest. Right. So our endowment is over $170 million. In uh, 2011, when we became president, it was, I don't, it was just about $80 million. Yeah, the stock market has helped us, but we, we're putting that corpus in there that gains the interest that we're making in the stock market. So um, we've, we've doubled our research, increased our enrollment by 50%. Largest source of funds at almost every university, particular public one, is tuition and fees. Mm -hmm. We have more students today. We've increased our enrollment by 50%. Mm -hmm. So you continue to grow. These metrics continue to increase. Makes money for the university. Now we've also been spending money because you couldn't attract this faculty or our students. At one time, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but our students did not think much about the attractiveness of our campus. You may have been I here. That. Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, you were here when they used to talk about our campus of being, I won't use the word, but it was the least attractive, okay? Mm -hmm. I haven't heard that. In almost a decade, as we started creating better spaces, we took this 200,000 square foot turn of the century high school, which is a gorgeous Gothic building on this campus. But at one time, it was actually an operating high school. We bought it, and we put almost over $100 million into the rehab. 
the day it opened, students were already in there. It is, and the students had a lot to say about the design, the furnishings, the finishings in that building. Students, we have great designers here, spoke about that. So let them, and faculty, let's have their input. Let's have their input. That building has been transformative by the quality of the classrooms. Uh, fifth, uh, the fifth and sixth floor are our uh, biology department, a new emerging, quickly growing field of study here, mm -hmm. very much part of science and engineering. And the good thing is, it's not even just confined to that building. I mean, Tiernan Hall and just all of the buildings are going through these rapid changes. We, we've, um, we've added a million square feet and spent uh, about $500 million uh, in money um, on maintaining critically important, we call it CRR, Capital Repair and Replacement. Uh, when I became president, we were spending about $3 million a year. Now we're spending on average $16 million a year. You can't maintain. A polytech university has to be innovative. It has to be entrepreneurial. It has to give students that physical experience. How do you do it if you don't put the money behind it? So, yeah, we've figured out, to your point about being an economist, how do you get money? How do you do the analytics about the money? Because you just don't throw money. You always got to look at the ROI. What is the return on our investment? And if I've tried to do anything here among those of us who spend the money, and we all do, is where's the return? Even the student senate that does well by getting student fees, we ask them to think, how can you make an impact? Will there be a return on the investment if you're going to make it on the behalf of students? So make the money, do the analysis, where's the ROI, and that will make more money for you if you're doing it well. So that's how we've uh, gone from a little over $300 million budget to over $600 million. Well, budget. I think the beautiful thing about that is this philosophy kind of always existed within government, right? They have these high-risk, high-reward grants where the National Science Foundation, all these foundations will give money to projects that are high-risk, but with the potential of a high payoff, a high reward. I mean, we talk about these vaccines that came out. A lot of these vaccines are funded by government research, too. And I think what NJT do, is doing really well here is it's putting that within reach of the students where it's giving them the capacity to make these high-risk um, ideas come to life. And then what that does is it generates a good ROI, a high reward, which then can... And I think that probably spurs more alumni contribution, too, because if you help an alumni succeed and then they become massively successful, then they're going to acknowledge their roots and then come back and contribute. So do you see that as the cycle that's being created here? Absolutely. So as more of our alumni have been successful, whether it's, again, whether it's individual entrepreneurship, startup companies, or corporate, our students, because the alum were a student at one time, they know who the students are. Very often we refer to it as our students have fib, fire in the belly. They are highly motivated to succeed, and they've got the tools to do it. So our students, very often, if you come to career day, most of the people, whether they're recruiting for their company 
or they're recruiting for their startup, they're alums of ours. The alums are come back to the career fairs and recruit. So today, students at NJIT, three and four job offers in hand upon graduation. There are uh, some of the fields and some of the disciplines in which we're educating our students. And you know, there's a workforce shrinkage all over the place. They're now six figures is very reachable for a freshman, or a graduating rather, a chemical engineer. So um, this is what's happening. Students, our alums recruit alums. They recognize that they are well prepared. They get very well compensated. Again, goes back to that number one ranking about moving economically lower or poor students, our families, to where they are now among the top earners and top tax taxpayers in the state and in the nation. And that's that's what always brings me back to NJIT is because that what that essentially means is you're taking the people that have been struggling their whole life and then you're giving them the opportunity to do really well. Um, I want to talk more about this RO, uh, this ROI driven approach. Um, does that tie into the School of Management at all? Because I know their whole their whole ethos right now is data science, and so are you leveraging the data science capabilities that they have there in terms of your your decisions when you're thinking about ROI? So in 1990, when I came here, there was a debate on this campus. We had just started the School of Management, mm -hmm. and it was generally perceived back then, 1990 of being a graduate school only. And again, based on just my own personal experience in education, um, if we're educating engineers mm -hmm. and architects and scientists, they need to understand business, whether they stay in the academy or they go into corporate America or they, they're startup innovators. Because at the end of the day, we couldn't do what we did here without money. They can do what they do. And many, remember, engineering, the, 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 the science of engineering is not trial and error. It's to use the money, and it's very often called value engineering. What is the, how can you do this project at the lowest cost with the highest value? That's what engineering is about. So now I I'm come here and this debate is going on. And you went, well, where do you stand on? Are we only a graduate school of management or do we do undergraduate and graduate? I said, it's a no-brainer for me based on who we are educating. We're educating people that go out into the workplace and they hit their place of work running based on their disciplines. They have to understand the financials, back to the financials, even if it's not their responsibility, but as engineers and scientists and architects. So I came down very strongly on the idea it's an undergraduate and graduate school. It had continued to morph into that to where I would propose to you that we have some very unique things here at this school. One of them is the Tuckman School of Management. The other is, for example, the Albert Dominanus College. You asked me an earlier question of why I stayed here or why I didn't go to Wall Street. Because two and a half years into my contract, a three-year contract. I met Mr. Dorman. Mm -hmm. Mr. Dorman came and he invited me to his, he was, his home base is in California, Los Angeles area. Um, and uh, 
he and the president at the time, Saul K. Fenster, were talking about an honors. We already had a bit of an honors program, 20 plus students. Why don't we turn it into an honors college? This was Al Dorman and Saul Fenster's idea. Mm. And, and then why were they picking on me? I was a vice president for academic and student services. Right. But I was in the State Department of Education, uh, coming from New York City to New Jersey. Some of the brightest students I had ever seen are here in New Jersey. And yet you didn't have what we have in New York City, uh, uh, Brooklyn Tech, uh, Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, these high-tech, now called high-tech high schools. So in one of my last years serving as assistant commissioner in the, uh, in the Department of Education is I worked to start these high-tech high schools. Mm -hmm. uh, we start, I started with a gentleman, I mean, he's unfortunately deceased, John Greco in Bergen County, gave them a grant from the state to do the planning and they took the Volk Tech High School, which is a county system in Bergen County, they created this high-tech high school. They did it in that county, Monmouth County has done it, Morris County has done it, other counties were 21 counties, I and mean, there are nine counties in the state of New Jersey that now have these high-tech high schools. So Mr. Dorman comes across that information about these high-tech high schools and understood my appreciation for not all of these students are gifted, but they're willing to work hard. They're willing to exceed the expectations. We, you and I may come back to expectations. They're willing to exceed the expectations, and many of them are gifted. So he comes to me and he says, well, you've done some of this work, so you would understand about gifted education. Also, when I was in, uh, in um, Trenton, a uh, senator at the time, Bill Bradley, some people may recall him from Princeton basketball fame, uh, introduced a bill about gifted education. And given my role in the state, I was asked to participate in that, uh, give some, get some information for then Senator Bradley, which we fed to his staff about why we must have in this nation a bill for gifted education. The bill ultimately passed. There was never any money behind it, however. Because people assume if you say to somebody that uh, you describe somebody as gifted, they don't need any help. Well, that's absolutely not the case. Now you just want to accelerate their education because you're not gifted really until you're an adult and you do something with this giftedness that people identified you had as a child growing up or even a high school student. That's when you're truly gifted. So we had a handshake deal. Uh, the three of us, President Fenster, myself, and Al Dorman, that we would, I would stay on for an additional contract and help create the Honors College. Once you've had that experience and you get to meet those students, I never left. Uh, and today, the Honors College, 700 students, this isn't always the best metric, but it's the one most of us understand. 700 students, average SAT scores, average. 1,500. Remember, 1,600 is perfection, eight mm -hmm. and eight. So, and they are very often the leaders on this campus. They are some of the, we talked about John Vito. He was an honors college student. They mm -hmm. stay here and do the innovation. They work with our faculty. Uh, they win national awards, Goldwater scholarships, Fulbright scholarships. Uh, and again, as undergraduates, they're working what in labs that very often are reserved for PhD students. So it, it, it changed, among other things, 
it changed the climate of who our students are and how many more of our faculty got very engaged with our students because of what they were willing to do and their capacity to do it. Expectations. Now, I, I really appreciate that. And as you were saying that, I, I see a lot of parallels in my own trajectory. We talked about this before we came on camera. But um, I see a lot of parallels between my trajectory and yours where I came to the education field with that same finance background where I understood that one of the things that I understood is that money is essentially value. And if you show that you put value into people, if you have faith in people, then you can help them see their own potential. Then you can exceed their, you can help them exceed their own expectations. I think that's what I loved about the Albert Dorman Honors College too, because what you were doing is, in, in my view at least, is you're investing in those students and you're saying, we value you, we understand that you are bright. So we are going to give you the resources in the form of a scholarship, in the form of now the NJII, where you know they have these opportunities to really see their own potential. So you're, in a way, giving them the faith in themselves that they need so that they can be their best. And I also see that where I'm at now in Memphis, where we talked about this again before we started rolling, where... I'm trying to shape minds there, and I'm trying to help these students see their value in themselves. So I talked about one thing that I did, which was I created posters for our basketball team so that they can see themselves as an NBA player, right? Because if you see yourself as an NBA player, then you're going to play to that level. You're not going to say, I mean, it just gives you something to believe in. So is that what the ethos was behind the formation of the, of the Albert Gorman Honors College? You are so right on. Um, and there's so many thoughts as you bring that up to go through my mind. Since you ended on, uh, and then I'll back into early research I did for not only my dissertation, but while I was at Columbia. So we have, it. we're in a unique, <laughs> a very unique set of circumstances, which just blows me away. We're a small school, 12,000 students, 9,100 undergraduates. Yet we're competing in D1 athletics, Division One, among the it is the highest, and we've been very competitive. Uh, we went to two NCAA tournaments, one in for the men's soccer and one in baseball. And here's something. Here's something. Two somethings, actually, mm -hmm. as I think about it. So it's about 360 athletes. Listen to this data point. 360 athletes playing D1 ball, starting or athletics, majoring in some of the most challenging disciplines that ever face young men and women. 26 consecutive semesters of over 3.0, on average, across 370 athletes in these most challenging 3.0 or better average GPA. That we win, not only do we win athletically, we win academically. How do we attract these students? And these are most of our students who come from out of state and sometimes around the world. We attract them because we're D1, we're a polytech. And about of those 370, I'm gonna say about 70 of them are honor students. Mm -hmm. So here it is, you wanna be an honor student in a STEM discipline you want to play D1 athletics, 
And for many of them, you want to come to an urban environment, we kind of fit a niche that is very well celebrated among the students who know this and our alums. So that, that one blows me away. But let me go can back. I, can I just talk about sure. that too? Because uh, I think a lot of people were confused by the formation of the WEC, whereas what you just said makes complete sense to me because the formation of the WEC, and that was one of the big transformations that happened while I was there, what it essentially does what I did for those high school students, right? You're treating these athletes who, I mean, people don't know the struggles of athletes, but they work super hard on the court to be at the caliber that they're at, where they're, you know, competing at a D1 level. But now you created a space that, first of all, enables them to succeed in that respect, but now you're showing them value as well by saying, hey, we appreciate the work that you're doing, so we're going to invest in a facility that honors the work that you're doing to show our appreciation. And I feel like maybe that is what contributes to them believing them in themselves on the educational front. Yes, and I'm going to take it beyond that now. So we're in the America East Conference. Mm -hmm. uh, it's nine schools. Uh, eight of us are public research universities. Of the eight, I think seven of us, six or seven of us, are all ones. So not only did the students, we played against the team this Saturday night, we won by uh, three points, if I'm not mistaken, men's basketball, against a nationally ranked R1 university, Stony Brook. Very, very competitive. You get very, very smart young men on the basketball court, and you see a very interesting game. Point one. Point two is, in the American East Conference, we have the deans, particularly the engineering deans. Mm -hmm. Engineering is across almost every one of the member schools. The engineering deans are work together as a group from these schools, which also happens to be our athletic conference. The athletic conference came first, then the deans. But also, let me go back to the WEC, because the WEC is entitled, as you know it, and it happened while you were here, mm -hmm. Wellness and Event Center. It's, a, it's, a, it's our largest physical facility on campus, but we're also Polytech. Now put that chemistry together. So Amazon Alexa wants to go and have a regional conference out of the clear blue, and they want it in an easily accessible place. The transportation around the city of Newark is outstanding. 15 minutes you're in the airport, 20 minutes you're in midtown Manhattan. So two conferences, two years in a row, Amazon Alexa hosts the conference. I actually, I managed the student volunteers during that event. I yes, you that. did. I remember you. That's yeah. why I bring it back up. <laughs> Seventh, in the second year, first year was about 3,500 people. Second year, 7,000 people over three days visited NJIT to participate. They don't even know who NJIT was, never mind that we're located in the city of Newark. Not only did they visit, let me tell you where they visited from schools that we are trying are aspirant schools, Carnegie Mellon, Caltech, um, MIT. So we had faculty and students who wanted to understand what Amazon Alexa, where it was going, and they came to the conference. Folks that I knew from internationally, there were 11 countries, all with Polytech University backgrounds, who came from around the world to our campus in Newark, New Jersey, to participate in the Amazon Alexa conference. Without the WEC, we don't have that conference. Since then, we've probably hosted about another 40 
pre-COVID, of course, pre-COVID, face-to-face, in-person, academic conferences. So the WEC is only about 30% athletics. The rest of it is large meeting space. Right. We're going to host our largest fundraising campaign dinner here ever. We usually hold it off-site uh, in March, sometime the end of March, in the WEC. You can take that WEC and dress it up like the best corporate conferencing center you can see, as you will remember mm-hmm. from what it looked like during Amazon Alexa conference days. That's incredible. And what, so I feel like the, the WEC is definitely a huge component about that, but what else do you think drives you know, these companies? Because there are so many, I mean, you talk about New York being right there, NYU's right there, uh, Rutgers is down the street. What brings these companies to NJIT specifically? Our disciplines. Right. Our disciplines. Um, when uh, we get interviewed uh, by the the uh, people who are going to host the event, the corporate planners, if you will, for Amazon, they wanted to make sure that the audience we attract, the people indigenous to this campus, were fully engaged in this, so faculty and students participated. But they also wanted it at our kind of a campus. We are a STEM campus. 88% of everything that everyone engages in here at this campus, whether you're student, faculty, staff, is STEM. We are we're one of the pure, whatever that means, but we're one of the predominant STEM universities. That was what most attracted. They wanted an easy transportation facility. They, want, they love the building. The moment they walked in the building and they saw the big open spaces, again, intentional. It's a multi-purpose building. Um, and, and, the, and the accessibility, and of course we anticipated, we even built a thousand car parking deck across the street from Well, there. even now the NJII, right? Because that, that t- it's not just a fancy building, but now there's also an infrastructure on the campus that takes this talent and makes them more creative by investing in them, right? Absolutely. So it, it, to your point, it, when we've thought about doing what we've done here with adding 180 faculty, when I say adding, we, there are 180 new faculty, many retired of the existing, so it is a delta of about 40 or 50 faculty since 2012, but to add, to recruit 180 new faculty, to add the uh, 4,000 students, to add the facilities, to have a WEC, to go eventually, it, you, you don't do this piecemeal. You do this with a plan. So we have had three, two particularly very, very compelling strategic plans. I'll talk about where we're going a little bit where we're going next, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, my uh, replacement, yeah, uh, Dr. Teklim, is absolutely on board. So we had these two strategic plans. We had metrics. We had KPIs, key performance indicators, which held us accountable, held us accountable for delivering. It's not just a book we're going to put on the shelf, or put on a floppy, or put on a in, in some file somewhere. So 2025 has, we think we've done well in establishing ourselves 
here we're obviously within the state, the region, and we're now national, right? We're a national university. Mm -hmm. Well, to bring on that conversation too, one of the big evolutions that I'm seeing, and this is something that I was recognizing when I was on campus, which was something that actually drew me to the business school, right? The business school, the ethos was business with the power of STEM. Right. But now it feels like the campus is going STEM with the power of business. So is that part of that transformation? And is that what uh, the new incoming president is going to take on? Uh, he is. And if you've come across any of the printed material about him or the interviews he's done, I mean, I came to industry relationships as a result of learning here. He's bringing it here. He already knows it. Uh, he was a very, very successful dean uh, at the uh, University of Cincinnati, establishing business relationships. Did, did similarly uh, in his interim presidency at the UT Arlington. So he, he's already addressing it. In this next strategic plan, we're talking about a branch campus in Cairo. So people look at you and say, Cairo? That's Egypt. Yes, it is. It's in the Middle East. Yes, it is. It's on the African continent. Yes, it is. Some of the fastest growing resourced countries is Africa. Egypt is a powerhouse in Africa, in the Middle East. Um, I've learned that in multiple ways, including some doing some work with the Air Force. So when we had the opportunity, based on a, a, a statute that was created in Egypt to attract international universities, while it wasn't the first model that we were going to pursue, it was going to be a joint model with the community college, they ultimately decided, no, we wanted NJIT there on its own. So you know the axiomatic expression, build it and we will come. Somebody, we have a partnership, outstanding company, Tatwa Mizra, they're going to, they're building the campus as we speak. I've been there several times. Last time I was there, out at the site in the desert, because uh, there's a new capital city, a new Cairo is being built in Egypt. Mm -hmm. A new knowledge city is being built in Egypt. We're going to be in the middle of a growth of t up to 10 million people. Um, we're going to be in a, on a 900 academic campus with uh, kind of high-tech high schools adjacent to mm -hmm. us. So what an exciting, and this is a country that is only going to continue to grow and appreciate. And isn't it great for this university to be part of that, to give back to what is the internationalization? Well, we know it's the internationalization. The international economy was being talked about and being done when I was a graduate student. So we know it's here, but it's the internationalization of people which is critically important. That's well, how we overcome some of the bias and the divisiveness. I'm sorry. Yes, no, 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 you, no, you're totally okay. Um, but it's actually funny. Um, a professor here recommended a book for me, uh, Factfulness, which I read a couple weeks ago. And you know, one of the things that they highlighted is that Africa is probably going to be the next emerging economy, right? Uh, a lot of countries are becoming more saturated, and that means investment in a country like that is going to yield to a lot of results. But in a similar way, it also sounds like the same ethos that went into creating the Albert Dorman Honors College, where if you invest in that area and you show the people there that there is value in their ideas, 
then, like you said, they will come, they will congregate, they'll learn, and they will build something cool. So does that kind of translate into what you're doing abroad? It's, it's thematically uh, the same. Yeah. So we happened to go there, well, I'm going to say, this past spring to sign uh, the next to final agreement. And I, I had no idea. But we're invited to this signing ceremony. I show up at the signing ceremony. There are a thousand people there. Why would a thousand people from Egypt? Mm -hmm. Now, yes, there was a very nice meal being served. Mm -hmm. It was in a beautiful part of the city, the existing city of Cairo. But why would a thousand people show up to your point, to your exact point? They saw you creating the opportunity. They wanted to be part of that, whether it's the Honest College, the Albert Dorman Honest College, or it's bringing Newark, New Jersey, NGIT Polytechnic Education to the country of Egypt. Well, and it also sounds like some of the, the changes that you made here at NGIT, right, like improving CKB, improving Tiernan Alley, you, what you did is, you, even this table here, right, you incorporated technology into it. You incorporated uh, technology into the makerspace. So is that also part of the plan in Cairo where you're going to give them this technology that enables them to be even more successful than they've already been? So the beauty of what we go through, our country, mm. and, and it's a classic case, um, when we wanted to get networking and telephone capacity, we put poles in the ground and strung wires, right? Mm -hmm. The next generation of countries is not putting telephone poles in the ground and they're not stringing wires. They're using satellite and Wi-Fi for communication systems and networking because it's the next generation. They're not going to use as much copper as we have used in this nation and which we've rightfully grown very attached to. So you travel in developing countries, and you don't see the telephone pile poles in the wire, which is subject to inclement weather and storms and, and wear and tear by being out there in the environment. So they've skipped a generation. Egypt is skipping a generation, and they're more invested. So if you look at students graduating from our high schools, 10 12% are interested in STEM. You go to the developing countries, let's take Egypt, it's 30-40% that are interested in STEM because it's, it, it's much more pervasive. Science and technology is a, as if not a more pervasive conversation about how do they improve that country. Well, it's, yeah. So yeah. No, it, it actually makes me think a little bit about Steve Jobs, right? He's someone that I admire. He's probably one of my biggest inspirations. But I think his philosophy around technology is if it's implemented correctly, it's magic, right? And I think that's what people in Cairo see, right? The implementation of technology is changing, whereas it used to be the case, like you said, you had to do pulls in the ground to get Wi-Fi everywhere. But now you see companies like SpaceX that are literally beaming internet down um, using satellites, using their Starlink services. and. What that, I assume, feels like in a country like Cairo is it feels like magic, whereas here we have kind of gotten used to that slow uh, stagnation towards that progress. Um, so that, that's really interesting because it, it gives them 
um, something to be exciting for, and I think that's what motivates them. Um, so just before we close, um, what what are your reflections generally about your time at NJIT, and what message do you have for the incoming president uh, coming in about the direction moving forward that you'd like to see? Well, again, based on he and I having interacted a good amount in these past several weeks, um, first of all, he has it and I have it. You have to love what you do. You've talked about it. You have to move. You have to recognize you continue to grow and learn. I do that every day here. I grow and I learn just by being in the company of this, the students, the faculty, the staff. You grow and learn. You have to love it. My wife and I have dedicated major parts of our life, whether we're traveling for fundraising, going to basketball games, uh, going to research presentations that our students and staff do, whether inviting the honors college students to our home for conversation. Um, so you have to love. And the, the passion that I think we have brought to our university is, I'm going to use your word, is change the ethos. We've always had very committed people to this university, our students and our faculty and our staff. But I think, if you will, sounds like a Beatles reference, there's a lot more love on this campus, love of who our students are. Let me say that again, love of who our students are. Love for the university, love for the work we do in improving the quality of life for people, whether it's our students or people who use what we develop here or cleaning, helping to clean. There's a record cleanliness of water, drinking water here in the city. I'm telling you, NJIT was supporting that program with our intellect, okay? Some of our faculty were behind that. We didn't get all the, and, and what the mayor was able to do is in record time, cleaned up the drinking water in the city of Newark, record time. It's being acknowledged nationally and internationally. So the legacy is, and, and, and everyone has a voice. Yeah. There's no, there is no one superior authority on this campus, nobody, or a superior intellect. We learn from one another uh, by partnering and being more inter interdisciplinary. We saw it, you talked about it earlier. How did these vaccines get moved so quickly? A sharing of knowledge, having created a base for these vaccines that was already in the queue, and then using the intellect, whether it was distribution methodologies, new thin needles, there were a lot of people. We hosted uh, a FEMA site here uh, for about, I don't remember, must have been about 60 days, and we gave out a couple hundred thousand uh, vaccinations here, and, and tests for, uh, uh, for COVID. So it was a, a community coming together. We are a community. Or a community that cares deeply about what we do. We're willing to learn every day, and sometimes it's 24-7 process in doing it. No, and it's incredible. And you mentioned the Beatles. I'm a huge fan of John Lennon. I think this campus, it reminds me of the song Imagine, right? Because this campus gives you an opportunity to imagine a better future. Yeah. Not just imagine it, but actually create it. So I'm really appreciative of the work that you've done to create that that atmosphere where people could just imagine their wildest dreams and uh, bring them to life. So thanks so much again for, for taking the time to join me. It was such a pleasure. And um, I know a lot of people don't know this, but 
during my last year at NGIT, right before I left, the last thing that I did was uh, induct you and uh, Dr. Regicado, Dean Regicado, into the fraternity. So as a gift from the fraternity, I would just love to present you with this uh, this shirt um, from Alpha Kappa Psi because you will always be remembered as an honorary brother of our fraternity, and this was from the rush process. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your support in my work, and I really appreciate the atmosphere that you've created here. Thank you, brother, and you stay well and take care. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. All right, this was so uh, much fun. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, this was awesome. Um, thank you again for and And time. when you and I get both the chance, and even if it's after June, yeah. if you get a moment, yeah. Um, look at something called the Effective Schools Research. Mm -hmm. Effective Schools Research. And then you and I'll talk. Okay. Because the first thing, raise the expectation. Okay. You've done it. Yeah, I appreciate You've it. You've done it. Thank you very much. Thank All right, you. take care. All right, stay well. You as well. So what do you, is Fez, tell me what Fez is. Is Fez, Fez it's a moniker, is it? It's, it's a new nickname. I mean, I watched the 70s shows a lot growing up, um, and oh. I always felt like I was misinterpreted as a person, and I feel like that just, it sticks with me, you know? So Fez is kind of an homage to that, um, but it's just a new branding, yeah.